All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at throttle up. And liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 419. This week in space history for March 30th through April 5th. I'm John Mulnix. First off, before we get started, I want to welcome everyone that's here. Um, I'm hosting the People of Space Twitter account this week. So if you're on Twitter, check it out. If you found out about the podcast via the People of Space Twitter account, welcome to the show. For everyone, new and old listeners alike, uh, here's a little bit of history on the podcast. I started it as a challenge to myself when I was living in Pierre, South Dakota, with pretty much nothing else to do. Um, it was that, or go to the bar and play pool, or darts, which frankly, it's, it's, it's fun, but not really productive. Uh, so I decided to do a podcast episode a day for an entire year. Episodes 1 through 365 cover everything from space history to fun family milestones uh, during that year to sci-fi and pop culture. There's really kind of a smorgasbord of everything in that first season. After season 1, season 2, 3, and 4 now, I've been trying to do more interview episodes. Um, I've been a bit behind from that. The interview episodes have taken a little bit of a back seat because of all the things that have been going on with the coronavirus. Um, life has just gotten busy but slow at the same time, if that makes sense. It's kind of a weird thing. Uh, but anyways, I'm still doing the podcast. Um, for everyone that's here, I actually did just uh, recently launch a Patreon page for the show. Um, you know, I've never thought that I wanted to make a profit from this, and I, that's not the goal of the podcast um, but I did launch the Patreon page because I'd love to cover all of those monthly expenses um, that I've got for running the show, whether it's podcast hosting or the software, yay for Adobe Audition and Creative Suite. Um, so that's why I launched the Patreon. Um, I'd also love to be able to get to a point where I can do more content related to space, whether it's podcasts or videos. Um, so if you have the ability to, um, and I know it's tight for everybody right now, but if you've got the ability to become a patron on Patreon, I would love if you could check that website out. Um, links are in the show notes, so be sure to check it out. Before we get to the history in today's episode, I do have a little bit of uh, late-breaking news. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine shared a uh, spectacular image of a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket with the worm logo which is by far my favorite nasa logo i'm really excited to see it's making a comeback um thankfully this was not an april fool's day joke that would have been really cruel um and just not not, not very good form from the administrator so i'm glad this is actual uh news the link to this nasa press release will be in the show notes so check it out on March 30th, 2017, SpaceX launched SES-10, a geostationary communications satellite, into orbit. A launch of a communications satellite may sound routine, but in fact, this mission marked a, quote, historic milestone on the road to full and rapid reusability as the world's first reflight of an orbital-class rocket. 
Falcon 9's first stage for the SES-10 mission previously supported the successful CRS-8 mission in April of 2016. About two weeks ago, SpaceX launched one of their Falcon 9 rockets for the fifth time, which is another milestone on the road to reusability. Check out the show notes for more SpaceX links. On March 30, 1982, the Space Shuttle Columbia came back to Earth, completing STS-3. Normally, shuttles landed at Edwards Air Force Base in California, or at the Shuttle Landing Facility in Cape Canaveral, but this mission didn't land at either of those facilities. Astronauts Jack Lausma and Gordon Fullerton brought Columbia back to Earth at an unusual landing spot, White Sands Space Harbor, which is outside of Las Cruces, New Mexico. The story behind choosing White Sands is recounted in Lausma's oral history, available on the Johnson Space Center website. According to Lausma, quote, We were also landing on lake beds in those days. Our intent was to land on the lake bed out at Edwards. We would be the third landing out there. About a week before the mission, Gordo and I were in quarantine at JSC and trailers inside of that big house down there. That's where we stayed for Skylab, too, over by the gym. Chris Kraft came in and he says, Hey, fellows, it's raining in California. The lake bed is wet. Next week when you want to land there, it's going to be muddy. What do you want to do? We talked with him about it for a while, and we decided there was only a couple of other places we could go. There was a lake bed at White Sands, the Northrop Strip, New Mexico. If we couldn't land there, we could be the first guys to try the runway at the Cape, which was 15,000 feet long and 300 feet wide. I wish they'd made it half as wide and twice as long, but so far it's worked real well. We know a lot more about what the shuttle does when it comes down than we did at the time, so we were playing it safe. Of course, out on the lake bed, you can make a runway that's six or seven miles long and crisscrosses them so you don't have to get the right one. They can try another one. We liked that because we weren't totally sure that the guidance system was going to get us back exactly where we wanted to be. I said, let's try the lake bed at White Sands, because we've done a lot of training out there and we know the terrain. We might not have all the navigational support out there, and there's only one runway instead of several. If the weather's not too bad, we can see it from a long way out. Chris said, well, I can't guarantee the weather, but if you're willing to give it a shot with using the Cape as a backup, we're willing to go with that. Lausma said, let's do it. Originally, STS-3 was to land a day earlier than it did, but due to a bad windstorm at White Sands, Lausma and Fullerton enjoyed an extra day in space. According to Lausma, quote, That was great, because it was an extra day in our world's favorite vacation spot, and we didn't have an eighth day in the flight plan. We finally had a chance to look out the window and enjoy being there. I don't know about you, but who can argue with an extra day in space? Plus, they became the only astronauts to land at White Sands Space Harbor. That sounds like the best way to end a mission. Hey there, just a quick note. I forgot to include the part about the wheelie landing, so check out the show notes for a video of this uh, interesting and hair-raising landing. We've got a couple of mission anniversaries on April 1st. First up, the Chinese Tianyang-1 space station 
re-entered Earth's atmosphere on April 1, 2018. The next mission anniversary was the launch of the TIROS, or the Television and Infrared Observation Satellite, that lifted off on April 1, 1960. TIROS-1 was the first of a series of 10 satellites launched between April of 1960 and July of 1965 with the goal of determining, quote, if satellites could be useful in the study of Earth. At the time, the effectiveness of satellite observations was still unproven since satellites were a new technology. It's amazing to think that TIROS-1 and other satellites like it were used to determine if satellites could be useful for the study of Earth. If you use a smartphone or rely on weather forecasting, chances are you've probably determined that weather satellites, at least, are definitely useful. NASA's Earth Science Division works on expanding our knowledge of our home world. A combination of airborne and satellite observations help us understand weather, seasons, geology, and more here on Earth. One thing I want to note is the study of weather by NASA. It's not done just for scientific reasons. There's an economic imperative as well. Think about how many industries are affected by the weather. Everything from farming to ranching, fishing, air travel, anyone that has to drive in inclement weather, tourism, and countless others are all affected by the weather of our home world. Studying Earth is both economically and scientifically prudent, and we shouldn't shy away from finding out as much as we can about our home world. Let's get back to Tiros 1 now. The spacecraft was able to send back extremely low-resolution images that were taken by a slow-scan TV camera on board the spacecraft. The camera was capable of taking one full image every 10 seconds. The images were then sent back to a ground station on Earth, and then recorded on 35mm film for distribution to scientists. Modern weather satellites like the GOES, or Geostationary Operational Environment Satellites, provide unparalleled views of our home planet. Check out the comparison between the early Tiros pictures and the GOES satellites in the show notes. On April 2nd, we had an interesting piece of American history, and I'm going to share the audio from episode 323 of The Space Shot. Be it enacted by the Senate and the House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, and it is hereby enacted and declared that a mint for the purpose of national coinage be, and the same as established, to be suitable and carried on at the seat of government of the United States. That was the first part of the act establishing the United States Mint on April 2nd, 1792. The reason I'm talking about this act today is over the years, a number of spacecraft have carried U.S. coinage into low Earth orbit, to other planets, and beyond. Astronauts carried coins and medals way back in the early days of the space race. Gus Grissom carried two rolls of silver dimes in the front left leg pocket of his spacesuit on his suborbital flight. After Liberty Bell 7 started to sink after splashdown, Grissom had to get out of the spacecraft. He later recounted that, quote, I had brought along two rolls of 50 dimes each for the children of friends, three $1 bills, some small models of the capsule, and two sets of pilot's wings. 
These were all adding to the weight that I could have done without. Grissom wasn't exactly in an ideal situation upon splashdown. The next time I'm out in Kansas, I'll be sure to ask my friends at the Cosmosphere more about the dimes that were recovered in the spacecraft itself, in addition to the ones that were carried by Grissom in his suit. After the dimes that Grissom carried, there were various other flights where astronauts brought coins or medallions with them. Mission medallions were flown during the Gemini and Apollo programs, and during the shuttle era, coins were flown on flights, as well as other memorabilia like Luke Skywalker's lightsaber, which was one of the topics of episode 162. United States coins have also made their way to other planets in our solar system. The Mars Curiosity rover is carrying a 1909 VDB penny on its image calibration target. According to a NASA article, quote, the penny is a nod to geologists' tradition of placing a coin or other object of known scale as a size reference in close-up photographs of rocks, and it gives the public a familiar object for perceiving size easily. The New Horizons spacecraft is also carrying some unique memorabilia. There are two state quarters, one from Florida and one from Maryland, a United States Post Office stamp showing Pluto, a piece of Spaceship One, CDs holding the name from the Send Your Name to Pluto project, as well as a small container holding some of the ashes of Clyde Tomba, the discoverer of Pluto. I'm linking to these pages and others in the show notes, so be sure to check them out. You can even see some space themes on a coin you might have lying around the house. The reverse side of the Eisenhower dollar has a design on it that's based off of the Apollo 11 mission insignia. Now we've got some more sci-fi history. On April 3, 1968, 2001 A Space Odyssey released in American theaters. Even though the movie is over 50 years old at this point, it stood the test of time for practical effects and storytelling. Do yourself a favor and just check this movie out. If you haven't watched it yet, I'm kind of surprised, to be honest. And with everybody being in quarantine, pretty much, now is a perfect time to give it a watch for the first time. Next up, we've got some Apollo history. Apollo 6 lifted off on April 4th, 1968. This was an uncrewed test of the Saturn V rocket. Apollo 6 carried a command and service module and a boilerplate lunar module into space in order to test how the Saturn V would handle the load characteristics of both spacecraft during launch. This flight experienced severe pogo oscillation issues, which caused problems for the mission. Pogo oscillation is an extremely dangerous thing for a rocket to experience. It makes the launch vehicle have a similar motion to that of a child's pogo stick bouncing up and down. This movement becomes repeating, which then intensifies the motion, causing dangerous movements that can damage both the launch vehicle and the crew. During the second stage burn of Apollo 6, two of the five J-2 engines shut down early, which resulted in a less-than-ideal orbit for the spacecraft. In yet another stroke of bad luck, the third stage failed to reignite, which meant that NASA had to utilize the SPS engine on the command module to boost the orbit of that spacecraft. The second flight of the Saturn V was anything but ideal, 
but this mission was helpful because it showed NASA the problems that it needed to fix. Now we're going to move forward a couple decades. On April 4th, 1983, the Space Shuttle Challenger lifted off for the first time on a five-day mission to deploy the first TDRS satellite and to test EVA procedures for the shuttle program. STS-6 was the first of 10 flights that Challenger flew during its three years of operation. STS-6 is one of the most picturesque launches that I've seen pictures of, with incredibly clear skies and a brand new, shiny orbiter. It even had that wonderful NASA worm logo. Be sure to check out the pictures in the show notes. Challenger launched with the first lightweight external tank, shaving about 11,000 pounds off of the launch weight of this massive structure. This allowed NASA to carry more payload to orbit. The commander of STS-6 was Paul Weitz, a Skylab 2 veteran, and from what I can tell, he has a great sense of humor. One of the crew portraits for this mission includes Weitz, Peterson, Musgrave, and Bobco, known as Bo, dressed in Civil War suspenders and hats, along with their NASA issue, very 80s light blue pants. I'm linking to this hilarious picture in the show notes. Peterson's holding a lever-action rifle, Weitz has a saber, Musgrave a bugle, and Bo a pair of binoculars. Another shuttle mission launched on April 4th. This one was STS-83, which lifted off on April 4th, 1997. This mission was cut short, with the crew spending nearly four days in orbit on what was planned to be a 15-day-long mission. A problem with a fuel cell necessitated that the shuttle was brought back to Earth immediately, since the orbiters needed two of the three fuel cells at any time in order to properly function. Losing one of the remaining two fuel cells would have placed the orbiter in a dire situation, so the flight rules were followed and Columbia returned to Earth. The crew and experiments planned for the STS-83 mission were recycled and flew again three months later in July of 1997 on STS-94. We've got some commercial space history next. On April 5th, 2018, Virgin Galactic performed the first rocket-powered flight of Spaceship 2, VSS Unity. At 8.02 a.m. Pacific Daylight Time, VSS Unity and VMS Eve, which is the White Knight 2 carrier aircraft, took off on what became the first powered flight since the loss of VSS Enterprise in an accident in 2014. The White Knight Carrier aircraft took VSS Unity to an altitude of 46,500 feet and then released the spacecraft. Seconds after dropping from its carrier aircraft, Unity's rocket motor was lit by test pilots Mark Forger Stuckey and Dave McKay. The pilots angled the spacecraft into a, quote, 80-degree climb, accelerating to Mach 1.87 during the 30 seconds of rocket burn. Unity ultimately reached 84,271 feet, which is way up there, but not quite space. In the Star Trek universe, April 5th, 2063 is First Contact Day, the day when humans make contact with an alien race, which was later found out to be the Vulcans in the movie, for the first time. 
I don't really ever need an excuse to watch Star Trek First Contact another time. So this week, I watched it again in honor of First Contact Day. Until next time, live long and prosper, everybody, and I'll catch you on the flip side. I do have a call-in number. If you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, just dial 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing the questions that you may have with all of the listeners. As always, the links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review. Reviews in Apple Podcasts help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure it reaches as many people as possible. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.